we can follow that by prayer. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for allowing us to lift voices, the voices that you've created in us to give you praise. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to participate today uh, to, to put these words that are in your word uh, to, to music um, and then to sing it back to you. And Lord, we, we trust that you are pleased with that. And now, Lord, I pray that by your spirit that you open up your word to us, uh, this, this incredible passage uh, of Paul that he wrote to the Philippians. And we'll give you thanks. Open up our hearts, open up our minds, Lord. Enable us to take this in and to live it out. In your name we pray, amen. Well, you may be wondering, why in the world were we doing what we're doing? <laughs> we spend so much time, you know, giving praise to the Lord. Well, <laughs> hello. The reason why we're doing that is because we were created to praise the Lord. Isn't that true? That's why we were made. It's the core of who we are as God's people. But now 2020, as we know, has been tough on just about everybody, whether we're Christians or not, whether we were praising the Lord or not. It's been, still been tough. And that has probably got to be the most understated <laughs> word ever, right? But because unless you've been living under a rock since January, you know that you've been drastically affected by 2020 one way or the other. It's time to turn in the calendar with 2020 on it, and to trade that in and give a new calendar. Get a new calendar, 2021. What will this next year hold for you? What will it hold for us? Those of you in school, what will you be doing the last half of this year, of your academic year? And even though we don't have the one who is a senior this year, uh, she is going to be graduating. And that's a cool thing. But some also in our congregation, we'll be starting a new job this year, just right off the bat. I heard that a couple of, from a couple of folks. And it's wonderful in this season that that happens, in the season of whatever people want to call it, pandemic or otherwise, right? What will 2021 bring politically and nationally? Not a very good outlook, I'm afraid. For starters, though, 2021 marks a new year, huge problems will carry over from 2020, a very divided, dangerous country. Many people thought that the election was stolen, and others gladly accept the results, although they too thought that there were many irregularities. I've heard it said that for a while, or I've said it for a while now, that we may very well be entering into a new system of government in our country, that of being called socialism. It's a single one-party political system. If we do, how much of that socialism will be foisted on us right off the bat? Well, that remains to be seen. Now, I hope I'm wrong about the direction of our country. You know, I've been wrong at least one time in my life. <laughs> but God specializes in revivals, does He not? I think the United States, I think America, we have been raised up by the Lord to do great things. And God has oftentimes visited us at key times, at strategic times. He's visited us. He's refreshed us. He's poured out His Spirit, and He's revived us. For example, the, 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 um, I believe it was the first great awakening. That happened when? Right before the revolution. 
And many people are saying if the first great awakening had not occurred, then we would probably be drinking tea at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But let's continue to pray that God pours out a revival upon us, beginning with Grace United. Regardless of our age, may revival begin with me and with you. But regardless of whether I am correct or not concerning the direction of our country, in one sense, we've always had a single system of government. God the Father has given His Son, His Messiah, all nations as His inheritance. And though on the ground we're living in a constitutional republic, and you young folks, you did know that, right? Constitutional republic. We're not a democracy, as what everybody says. We're a constitutional republic. The truth is, the monarchy of Jesus has always been in place in this country. The glorious truth is that the Lord Jesus is king, not over just the United States, but over every country we can name. And he will be forever. Regardless of who sits in the chair behind the desk at the Oval Office beginning next month, it is comforting to know that King Jesus has never abdicated his throne. And when 2024 rolls around, he won't be running for re-election. He will never become too old to function. He is from everlasting to everlasting. King Jesus can never be bought. Indeed, how can a person who owns everything be bribed? As perfect man, as the God-man, how can the Lord Jesus subject himself to a bribe, corrupting his position as king of kings? But with that said, there is much struggle that remains in the here and now. And given what I just said, the best is yet to come because King Jesus is coming back. And so how to obtain and maintain hope between now and then? This is what we're going to talk about today and next week. And we're going to cover this in two weeks because there's so much here in Philippians. And my prayer is that over these next two weeks, these messages will sink so deeply into our hearts that we will never, ever be the same again. That we will see the world and even the difficulties in a new light, never going back to the way things were in our own minds and hearts. God has something to say to us at the beginning of 2021. And the fact that we live in a world filled with evil and decay is reality 101, and Christianity 101 as well. See, we know how sin got here, don't we? Adam and Eve bit the fruit. Well, much more than that. Adam and Eve committed high treason against the king of the universe, punishable by eternal death. And we have been suffering ever since. Not that we would have fared any different, mind you, if we were Adam or if we were Eve. Do you think that you would have done any different? Probably not. Now we live in a world tainted by sin and death. The entire human race is made up of people full of self-will rather than to serve the, the, and worship the one true and living God. They seek their own way and not God's ways. And so decisions are made that benefit some and not others. Laws are enacted which reinforce what Isaiah said where people call evil good and good evil. Crimes are committed. Diseases are actually invented and patents secured with them. 
And let's not forget about all the natural disasters and things that is brought about because this world is tainted by sin. And let's not forget the wars and the reason for, for organizations like the Marines. That's because of sin. All because Adam opened a Pandora's box of evil. But our sin did not take God by surprise, did it? Even before he created us, he had already taken the account of the fall in his own mind. He was going to work with it. That's how wise and all-knowing God is. He set his plan in motion and even let us know how he would take care of our sin. The Lamb of God was slain from the foundation of the world. God has never left us alone, although sometimes it may feel like it. It may seem like it, that things are spinning out of control. God has never left us alone. He's continuing to work His plan, and He will use even the evil in the world to glorify Himself. And He's even told us about this in Scripture, how His plan was going to work out. Just a surface reading, though, of God's Word tells us that down through the ages, God's people and sinners alike all share something in common. And what is that? We heard a little bit about that today, that we all experience pain and suffering and difficulties and sin and sickness and even death. But God, who is good and desires all people to be saved, He offers us hope. Now, hope is a word that is thrown around a lot, but do we really know what it is? What is Hope, what is it all about? It seems that hope is what I sometimes refer to as a container word. We fill that container with whatever suits us. Now, those who've been around for a little while longer than some others, remember Obama's campaign slogan, hope and change. But did Obama define what hope was? It's almost as if he allowed the people he was talking with and talking to to fill that container with whatever they wanted to fill it with. Well, it's been said that we can live about 40 days without food. It's also been said that we can live about three days without water, but we can only live about four seconds without hope. Now, I don't know about the four seconds, but the point is clear that hope is necessary for every person to live. John Ortberg in his book, If You Want to Walk on Water, You Got to Get Out of the Boat, (laughs) cites a medical study in which 122 men who had suffered their first heart attack were evaluated on their degree of hopefulness and pessimism. Here are the results. Of the 25 most pessimistic men of this study, 21 of them died eight years later. And of the 25 most optimistic men, only six of them died. Eight years later. Loss of hope increased the odds of death more than 300%. That predicted death more accurately than any medical risk factor, including blood pressure, amount of damage to the heart, or even the cholesterol level. Hope is indeed crucial and critical. And Orberg, though, adds this thought to this study. He said, better to eat Twinkies and hope than to eat broccoli and despair. <laughs> I'd say amen to that. <laughs> So what is hope from God's point of view, which really is the only point of view that matters? Simply, true hope is something that we as Christians look forward to 
with absolute certainty, so much so that we stake our very lives on it. Hope means that it is impossible for it not to be. For example, I have hope that heaven awaits me because I place my faith in the Christ of the Bible. Many others say the same thing, like the apostles in the first century or our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted right now in the 21st century. Do you think that they would willingly suffer martyrs' deaths if their hope was not set on Christ? So hope is absolutely cer- absolute certainty that something is real or that it will come to pass. Absolute certainty. And so when it comes to hope, what we don't say is, I hope so, as in the way we normally think hope. No, when it comes to hope, we say this, I know so. That is biblical hope. And I'm profoundly grateful that the Lord gives His people that hope, that He will restore all things exactly the way He wants them when it's all said and done. God gives His people the absolute certainty that this life is not all there is because Christ awaits us. The Father awaits us. Loved ones in heaven await us. Well, who is us? All of us who have faced the reality of the bad news. We face that reality that we are sinners, doomed to a Christless eternity in hell. But we've also embraced the good news of Christ Jesus. We've turned away from our own ways. We've repented from our sins, and we have placed our full trust in Christ and who He is and the price that He has paid for our sins. And His resurrection from the dead gives me hope. He promised His disciples, because I live, you will live also. Do you have that hope today? And so in light of the absolute certainty that the Lord is indeed the Lord and will remain so forever, What kind of people are we to be as Jesus' disciples? How can we demonstrate biblical hope, either in the classroom or on the job or even at home, where no one but those that we love and closest to us see us? Let's look no further than the Apostle Paul. See, Paul set his hope on Christ, and he literally fell on his sword for it. Or should I say, a sword met his neck. And he died ushered into Christ's very presence. And I can't think of a more practical passage of Scripture to demonstrate biblical hope than Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. And the next week we're going to cover Philippians 4, 8 through 13. But, and I wanted to do, like I said, you know, all of it together today, but I figured there's just so much here. It's so rich. And so we just want to walk through four verses today. And again, and my prayer is, that we will see what Paul has to say about hope here and how we can live that hope out. These commands, we ought to be savoring here of what it looks like for people who have set their hope on God. The first, let me give a little backstory, probably a little familiar to, to some of you, maybe to others not so much. But we want to talk a little bit about why Paul wrote Philippians and the circumstances surrounding this why he did this in the first place. See, Paul suffered greatly because of his hope in Christ. 
Scripture tells us of the number of times he was flogged, beaten with rods, and even stoned. And we say flogged, we're not talking about just like a regular whip. We're talking about the kind of whip that was used on Jesus, the flagellum. He was even stoned. Now, he should have gone to heaven when he got stoned. But the Lord had more work for him to do. In fact, his, his, his brothers thought that he was dead. They dragged him out of the city, but guess what he did? He got up. Can you imagine what he would have looked like then? But he got up and went back into the city, and he began to preach again. <laughs> Do you think he would you listen to Paul <laughs> like that? I think I would. But it had been a number of months before Paul wrote Philippians since the Lord Jesus himself appeared to him in a vision and said that he would go to Rome and give testimony there in the capital city of the empire. There was a time in Paul's life when he spent four continuous years in confinement, two years in a place called Caesarea and two years in a place called Rome. He was originally imprisoned. Why? Because he was falsely accused in Jerusalem. His accusers purposely misunderstood him, but no matter, he was guilty till proven innocent. When he arrived in Rome to serve out what would be years three and four of his incarceration, his first order of business was to secure a place to live. See, he was a political prisoner, but unlike our prison system, there were no holding cells. The onus was on him to find a place to stay and pay for it out of his own pocket. The scholars tell us that Paul probably had to enter into a contract while he was waiting to get onto the docket to see Nero, bloodthirsty pagan Nero. And all the while, throughout the two years he was in Rome, he was chained to guards, Roman soldiers, one, possibly two, for the entire time, sort of like primitive ankle bracelets that we have in our day. In other words, while Paul was in Rome for two years, as Luke writes in Acts 28, 30 and 31, he was under house arrest. But day after day, Paul waited. He was already a social outcast from his own religious folks. He probably had very little money. And he couldn't get a job to pay for his jail cell, as it were. How to get provisions? He lived with the temptation to be all wrapped around the axle at the thought of facing bloodthirsty, wicked Nero. See, Nero didn't like Christians very well, and we know some of the things that he did to them. But instead of Paul living in dread or fear or anxiety, he got to work, even where he was. See, he didn't let moss grow under his feet, to use that antiquated term concerning ministry. He created opportunities to preach and to teach. The whole Praetorian Guard, which was Rome's finest troops, knew why Paul was there. They knew that he was in chains for the cause of Christ. How did they know? Paul told them. He had a captive audience as the guards listened to Paul preach and teach all those who came to his door. And so in reality, who was chained to whom? Were the guards chained to Paul or were the Paul chained to the guards? who had rotational Paul duty every six hours. And because he could not get a job, Paul took advantage of the time that he had. Besides preaching and teaching, he wrote four letters while he was in Rome under these circumstances. He wrote Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and a thank you joy-filled letter to the Philippians. 
And next week, we're going to talk about why Paul thanked them. And so now that you have some backstory, let's go to our passage for today. Again, Philippians 4, 4 to 7. And let's, let's read these things. And again, my, my prayer is that we will walk out of here demonstrating to the world which so desperately needs to see God's people living out the fact that we have placed our hope in God. So let's read Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let's stop there and let's look at this. The first step in living a hope-filled life is here. And it begins by rejoicing in the Lord. And just in case we didn't get it the first time, he tells us again, rejoice. But let me point out the heart of this verse. Rejoice is a command. It's an imperative. And going back to school, what role does the word imperative play? What does it mean, young folks? What does it mean? Have to do it. Nike theology. Just do it. It doesn't matter what you feel like. Just do it. It tells us to exercise our will to accomplish something. Now, as many of you know, one of my favorite movies is Princess Bride, right? And remember how Fazzini and his crew were in the boat with Buttercup? And Fazzini commands, move the thing and the other thing. Exercise your will, ego. Do something about what I just told you, Fezzik. See, we are to exercise our will also. We are to do something about rejoicing. Express your praise. And as we are express our praise, we do that in the Lord. We don't rejoice in circumstances because in circumstances is nothing more or less than just being happy. We don't rejoice in those things that change on a whim. 2020 is almost over. Can we breathe a sigh of relief? Yes, thank God for that. We are happy about that and we're relieved about that, but we rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord, right? That's what he said twice. And the more that we can know and that we do know of the Lord, the more that we can rejoice in him. And so my challenge for all of us in 2021, just like we heard a little while ago, let's discover more about our Lord so that we can rejoice more in him. And by the way, what of the Lord do you know? How do you see him? How do you experience Him? How do you understand Him and His ways? Now, we just observed the traditional day of Christmas a few days ago. God sent Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And during the days of His ministry, Jesus often spoke of a phrase called eternal life. Eternal life. And the most famous words that Jesus spoke are found in John 3.16, true? Now, John 3.16, say it with me if you know it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life or everlasting life. Same thing. So, He said this, eternal life, everlasting life. But what is eternal life? He said that that's why He came, to give it to us. But what is eternal life? How does the Lord describe it? Well, that will be John 17, 3. And he says this, and this is eternal life. 
Okay, guys, I'm ready to give you a definition. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So eternal life is not gaining heaven. That's not what eternal life is. Those who have eternal life will go to heaven. But Jesus' own words tell us that eternal life is what? It's knowing God. See, we will need to go to heaven. Why? Because it will take us an eternity to get to know God and his Christ. And so, if we make a habit of rejoicing in the ever faithful, strong, all-wise, holy, and good God, then we can relax and it will show in our lives even in the middle of tough circumstances and difficult people that we find ourselves with. Let's go on to Philippians 4, 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, what does this word reasonableness mean? It can be defined this way. Gentleness of attitude and behavior. In contrast with harshness in one's dealing with others. You know people who deal harshly? (laughs) I think we all do, don't we? Sometimes we do. Now, there's a lot that we can say about this verse. It says, let your reasonableness, let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And, and I wish we had time to talk about it, but because people would think along these lines. Does it really mean that I have to let people kind of walk all over me to be a doormat when God tells me I'm to be gentle with others? Because a lot of people think that when they think of gentleness. But let's remember that Jesus described himself as meek and humble in heart. That's how he described himself. And I don't know about you, but I don't think Jesus was a wimp. And also, let me point out the idea of the Lord's nearness here. It can mean that the Lord is coming soon. You know, like, you know, we're closer today than ever before, right? You know, that's, that's a good thing. Or we can understand the Lord's nearness as in he is as close as our next prayer. So closeness, nearness, both work that way. And so let's put these verses together this way. If we are constantly exercising our will by rejoicing in the Lord on one hand and always aware of the Lord's nearness on the other, what would that do to our lives? We can put up with a whole lot in this life, can't we? We can let a lot of stuff go knowing the Lord's near and knowing that we exercise our rejoicing in the Lord, our will, we do that. And that's step one of living a, a, a hope-filled 2021. Now let's move on to step two, which is really the heart of this message. If you get nothing else today, get what I'm about to say here. Because I can guarantee you, if the truth of this passage gets into our heart of hearts, we will never be the same. It's a tall order, I know. But let's, but let's see this. Now these words of this scripture are very familiar to us. Some of us may have even memorized these words. And if we're not careful, we're going to miss the power and significance of these words. So hear these words again for the first time. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
So let's take a little time here and look at these amazing verses and the power that's here. First, again, we are to come back to obeying a command. He says here, do not be anxious about anything. That is an imperative. That's a command. Exercise your will not to be anxious. And some versions also have it, pray about everything. Don't be anxious about anything and pray about everything. But as we know, as we go through life, we have all kinds of problems, don't we? And the vast majority of our problems, we don't see coming, do we? How many times do we fall down the steps and we get down to the bottom and say, how did I get there? Or we just kind of bend down to pick something up and we can't even straighten back up. Next up, chiropractor, right? Or out of the blue, you get a text or you get a call from someone, a friend of yours, and he or she has severe words for you. You are falsely accused. You try to explain, but to no avail. And the next thing you know, your friend has now defriended you on all social media. Has that ever happened to you? Or what about all the little things that seem to pile up? Little frustrations, little problems. And before you know it, somebody comes by all innocently and you blow up at them. How does that happen? As Ms. Kathy always tells us, give it to God. Just give it to God. Absolutely. But what does giving it to God look like? And how do we know that we've given it to Him? I think that's a pretty important question, don't you? It's not just a cliche. It is something that we actually can do. So let me give you two hooks to hang your thoughts on as we talk about this very thing. The first hook is play catch. Play catch. And the second is give thanks. So now, first of all, let's talk about playing catch with God. In order to do that, let's look at at 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, and I believe it's on the screen. Here, Peter gives us a prayer command. Again, as does Paul, interesting how the Lord tells us, commands us to pray. Why do you think that is? (laughs) Because it's not normal for us to pray, is it? He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Now, get this, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Peter tells us that when we have an issue, as in anything that causes us anxiety, we humble ourselves before the Lord. How do we do that? By praying. And in our prayer, what do we do? We cast our anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for us. What an invitation for our, from our great God that we may cast our Anxieties on Him. So what does it mean to cast our anxieties on Him? It literally means to fling them. Fling them on the Lord. Fling them from ourselves. Like throwing a Frisbee or tossing a ball to someone. The point is that we allow our anxieties to leave our spiritual hands, so to speak. And we toss them to Christ. But how many of us pray like that? Here's how we normally pray, isn't it? Depending on how long it's been since we last talked to the Lord, we have a spiritual bag of stuff, don't we, that we come before the Lord with. We put it down, we open it up, and we spend a lot of time just kind of going through all of our bag of stuff, presenting it before the Lord, bringing it before the Lord. And then when we're finished, what do we do? 
put it back in our bag, pick it up, put it back in our bag, and walk away, don't we? That's how we often pray. My brothers and sisters, we need not do that. We need not present and put our stuff in front of the Lord. What does First Peter tell us to do? We fling them. We toss them onto the Lord. And what does he do with us? He plays catch with us. We toss them onto the Lord. We toss our anxieties onto him. So what does he do now? How does he play catch with us? Let's look at verse 7 and also look at the next hook, which is thanksgiving. The second hook is indeed thanksgiving. The heart of our prayer to the Lord, whatever concerns us, is that we pray with thanksgiving. We just don't have a grocery list and say, okay, God, you just do this. No, we have we attitude of thanksgiving is what we need to have when we pray. When we give the Lord thanks, we are showing him that we trust him. Our Lord is trustworthy. Tell me that's not so. How often has the Lord shown up in your life, give you grace and mercy and love and power and faithfulness and even discipline in your life? See, it's all for his glory and it's for our good. And so what happens when we toss our anxieties to him with an attitude of thanksgiving? He plays catch with us, but he doesn't throw back our anxieties back in our face, does he? What does he give us? Look at verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do you see the dynamic at work here? Whatever concern we have, we play catch with the Lord. We cast our anxieties on him, and he tosses his peace to us. His peace then guards our hearts and minds in Christ. And the bottom line is that we know that we have given our concern to the Lord, our anxieties to Him, when we receive what? His peace. And by the way, if we don't experience His peace when we pray, guess what we haven't done right? We haven't let go. It's like we presented before the Lord, but we picked it back up. Now we need to fling it at Him, toss it over to Him. And as we do, He will give us back His peace. Would to God that we would always play catch with God. Isn't that right? But there's more to our second step of living a hope-filled 2021. God, through Paul, promises us his peace in Christ to guard our hearts when we play catch with him. But what does his peace look like? We have peace. Maybe that's another word that kind of gets thrown around. What does it mean to have peace? What kind of picture can we paint to see what this peace looks like. And here is where it really, really gets good. It's so cool. I love this. Scripture paints what godly peace looks like. It's a tender moment with the Lord, described by a man after his own heart, God's own heart. David, the warrior, man after God's own heart, paints this picture of peace. And so what I want you to do, turn with me to Psalm 131. Psalm 131. Here David describes what peace is really looks like with God. Psalm 131. Very, very short psalm back here. Again, David himself writes this about his own personal relationship with God. He says this, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. 
I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Do you see the picture in your mind's eye? In our Wednesday study in prayer through the Psalms time, we often see David in trouble. He pours out his lament of his concerns and his pains and sorrows to the Lord. But in this psalm, David pauses, as it were, to express his appreciation and his gratitude for the God who tenderly cares for him and dearly loves him. See, with all the troubles that David had, his relationship with the Lord was like that of a small child leaning against his mother. Closeness, protection, contentment. Now, you mothers know what I'm about to say is true. A non-weaned child wants food, right? But a weaned child experiences closeness. And notice how David describes his closeness with God. He said, his eyes are not raised too high. He does not occupy himself with things too great and too marvelous for him. In the midst of all of his storms, David expresses his trust in the trustworthiness and strength of the Lord who so dearly loves him. What a picture of peace. So let's apply this picture to our prayer life, shall we? Let's look at prayer, our step two of a whole field 2021, like this. Anything that ruffles our feathers, anything at all, is what we come to God with. For what concerns us concerns Him. That's number one. Number two, we play catch with the Lord, causing, casting our anxieties on Him. And in doing so, we give Him thanks. And what does He do in return? He gives us His peace. His peace that surpasses all understanding. And that peace looks like a weaned child leaning back against his mother. He's not concerned about the anxieties of life. And the anxieties sometimes include how God is going to answer our prayer, didn't it? How often do we give to God our prayer requests and, we, and we're wondering, God, how are you going to answer this? But what do we know about prayer? What do we know? <laughs> that we don't know how to pray. That's what God says. That's His Word. Spiritual fact of life is simply this. We don't know how to pray in a given situation. We don't know what it is that God would want or that we would... That we don't know God's mind on so many things, right? Romans 8, 26 and 27 says this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the bottom line, step two, is that every situation is God's invitation to cast our cares on Him in prayer and then linger in His presence, leaned back against Him like a weaned child. See, we are not concerned with how He will answer or when he will answer, but we are just contented with the fact that he will answer our prayers when we pray according to his will. When we abide in him and his word abides in us, we ask what we wish and the Lord promises it will be done. But we don't know how and we don't know when, but we know he will do it. 
and we know it will bring glory to himself. And the result of all that is that we will rest in him like a child, weaned child against his mother. And out of simple childlike trust in him, our confidence in God grows. So let's review what we have so far. Step one, we rejoice in the Lord, living the light of his nearness. And when we do that, we can show gentleness to all. We never have to get wrapped around the axle about anything because we rejoice in the Lord and we, we, we bask in his nearness. And as the song by the Gaithers goes, why should I worry or fret? We don't have to. Number two, every situation is God's invitation to play catch with him. We toss him our anxieties. He tosses back to us his peace that passes understanding. He guards our hearts and our minds in Christ. We live in the tender moments that the Lord provides us as a weaned child against his mother. This is contentment, and this is peace beyond words. And so finally, to bring part one of this hope-filled sermon in for a landing. Do you remember the song that we did at the beginning, that Kitty and Natalie did? Let's listen to it as it's recorded. And notice who is singing. Let your heart sing praises in this way. Father, thank you so much for caring for us. Lord, you don't have to care for us, but you do. That only magnifies your glory. It only magnifies who you are. We admit, Lord, that we are poor sinners. But, Lord, you have redeemed us, all of us, all of us in Christ. And we praise you. Lord, I pray that as we live out our hope that's fixed on you, that we will indeed learn how to let things go. Because, Lord, we can rejoice. We can exercise our will. And we can recognize the fact that you are near as close as our next breath. Then, Lord, you want us to cast our cares, fling them upon you. And then in return, you'll give us your peace. Help us, Lord, to live that out before a world that so desperately needs to see this, so that they too might turn and come to know you as Lord and Savior. I pray now, Father, that you'll help us as we finish the rest of the service to sing to you, to sing praise to you in our giving as well. I pray that you'll help us to give, give because we love you, because you are worthy of our gifts. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.